Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Oh, great to have you with us. It is the V8 Salute Podcast, powered by Repco. Aaron Noonan with you. Will Dale is across the desk from me. Hello, Will Dale. How you going? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, we've had a weekend, well, not a full weekend, but a bit of time over the weekend down at Phillip Island, checking out a bit of TCR and S5000 and Trans Am and sports Formula sedans. Ford and sports sedans and GTs. There was plenty going on. You were virtually, you were a punter for the day. Yeah, it was great. It was nice to walk around the island and, well, Get driven around the island. <laughs> it was around the outside road. Look at the cows. Look at cows. Yeah, I was going to say you could just do two at once. There, just yeah. a couple of cows references. Uh, what was your highlight of the day being a punter? Um, actually, one of the highlights was the Formula Ford race on Sunday morning. Oh, how good was Formula Ford? It yeah. just rocks. The, rocks. What, the highlight was the racing itself, which was a pack of seven cars for basically the entire race. And the fact that it was a close enough finish that the commentators and the timing system in front of them didn't know who won. <laughs> um, the other highlight was watching it from the top of the Phillip Island pit building and watching all the Formula Ford crews walking back and forth across the top of it to keep an eye on the action. <laughs> That's the bit I love at Phillip Island. If you've not been there, on top of the pit building, if you stand on the pit straight side, you see them go vroom, vroom, vroom down the pit straight. And then, of course, they're gone once they go out of sight towards turn one. And then everyone goes to the other side of the pit building to catch them coming back out on the run. And when they pop corner. out past the hay shed and they start to sort of pop up over the, the brow and they run down to, to Lukey Heights and into MG. Uh, this is a Q&A episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast. Uh, last week was our second part of two parts with Paul Wally Weissel. I've had great feedback from uh, Wall's chat. I mean, some of those great HRT stories of the era that he was so heavily involved in. And uh, I think he's the new winner of the Thomas Mezzera impersonation contest, potentially also nearly removing Thomas himself from being the gold medalist in that pursuit. I don't know. Thomas does good. Does do a good Thomas. He, he does, but it's not a – it's authentic. It, it's not it's, a rip-off. Uh, so it's It's, it's not an impersonation do if he's doing it himself, Exactly I guess. right. Yeah. You can't impersonate yourself. That's a little bit tricky. Our mailbag is full once more from uh, our loyal, loyal V8 Sleuth listeners and readers through our social media and through our website. Uh, keep them pumping. We will uh, – if we don't get to them very quickly the next week, we just store them up and then do one big batch when we haven't had a sit-down interview or two. By the way, before we get stuck into this Q&A, next week we are going to rewind on the podcast and talk to our guest from a long time ago. In fact, episode – what are we up to next week, Will? What's our sit-down interview podcast next week? Should 189? 189, yes. So I'm going to do the one. I'm going to talk to John Bow. It's a long time ago since we talked to him on the podcast to kick us off. He was the inaugural guest on the pod, sitting in these very chairs. He's coming in soon, and we're going to chat to him for next week. That's He's, good, huh? Oh, absolutely. He's had a bit go on since then. Just a bit. Yeah, just yeah. a bit. Bit of health stuff, bit of TCM stuff. He's yeah. always got a, an opinion about the sport and the categories. Looking forward to having JB on the pod uh, next week. Let's bowl into the questions. They've been thick and fast. Um, I might start with a new ball. You're batting. Get ready. Ben Murphy has the first one. Uh, he's listened to the Terry Wyhoon podcast that we did a little while ago, and he's talking about should Gen 3 cars that are slightly modified become 
the Super 2 cars instead of the ZBs and Mustangs going into there, as Terry Wahoon kind of alluded to in the podcast chat, um, to combat the lack of competitive cars that are available because there's plenty of collectors who are snapping up those cars in the last 12 months and indeed right now. Do we think the idea's got merit? Is Is it a remote possibility? The cheaper cost of Gen 3 engines especially could be very good for the category, says Ben. That's what Ben says. What does Will say? I, all that is true. Like it, the idea does have merit, but they're coming against. Um, they're coming up against time being an issue now. Like it's getting rather late. Sure, the like the main game teams need to build their own cars, so they probably won't be building them for customers. Which means the Super Two teams themselves would have to build their own cars. And do they have the budget? Do they have the time? Do they have the manpower? Um, the the later, the longer it goes on before a decision like that is made, the more difficult that becomes to actually execute. So I, I think that would be a very remote possibility, if not in highly unlikely or impossible. It's kind of the logical next step down the track for mm. Super 2 in that you think of the main game teams, there's 25 cars on the grid of the championship at the moment. Those t- You need to build 25 plus you need spares. So there's probably a need for about 35 chassis first up to get us rolling from – Round one next year, you reckon? There or thereabouts, give or take one or two. There'll probably be a couple of teams that go go into round one with no spare chassis. Or so. might have a chassis that needs to be built up yeah. along those lines. So there's no way, no way that there's enough stuff floating for Super 2 teams. Hmm. The whole point of Super 2 existing, and Super 3 indeed, is to flow on the gear. So I can't see supercars being in a situation at some point of doing this when you've got all these other cars floating around. Now, in two or three years' time, I see it being the next logical jump. If you could get supercars to say, no, ZBs and Mustangs don't go to Super 2, keep racing VFs, FGXs and Altimas, which I know there's a lot of teams would be keen for that to unfold. Mm. Um, And then the next step we do for Super 2 is in two or three years' time, use up that gear you've got at the moment. Look, I've got to go and do the numbers, but ZBs and Mustangs, when you take out what's been snapped up by collectors already, there's not much left. And take into account that there's some teams, Tickford, probably Brad Jones Racing, who have history of running in Super 2. And if they've got those cars, they're probably better running them and using them as an asset and having drivers bring a budget and getting more spend or income out of them, I should say, mm. for the next one or two or three years than selling them at a bit of a cut rate price. So that cuts down how many are available full stop on top of the collectors anyway. For sure. Well, I guess the other thing that's probably worth factoring in for if that when that does happen with Gen 3 moving into Super 2 a couple of years down the road, just how fast are those Gen 3 cars going to be? Can Will it be a scenario where they actually could coexist with a current uh, car of the future are Gen 2 cars? Are you going to say parity here? Are we going to try to parotize cars? No, no I'm, I'm suggesting maybe they don't need, depending on how quick they get, maybe they won't need that high level, that level of parity. Yeah, maybe. Could we maybe end up seeing Gen 3 become or a modified Gen 3 become Super 2 in three years' time and the VFs and so on and so on stay as Super 3 at that stage or become Super 3 at that stage? Because the plan is for them to become Super 3 next year. Oh, for sure, for sure. So there's a whole pile of possibilities there, Ben, but I think what's going to happen is supercars and their teams won't want to – I mean, there's not enough time to build more Gen 3s anyway, but – the point of that series is to flow on the gear down the line. So by hook or crook, having ZBs in it and Mustangs in Super 2 next year is what supercars want to have happen and what their teams will want to have happen because they've got gear, they need to either move it on or use it for themselves. So I can't see it not happening, even though there's plenty of arguments against it that were probably good arguments, but Mm. that's just how it is. 
Next question is from Michael Sharp. And you know what? Michael Sharp is a really good bloke. Because he's really sharp? It's because he, he starts his question with, just purchased the 2022 Supercars Season Guide. Great idea, Michael. You can have your question answered now if you like. <laughs> uh, Michael said he has just purchased it and was interested in reading that there was a history printed for Grove Racing, whereas Premier Racing was listed as a new team. And he's curious as to the reason why, as to the public eye, both were former teams that were purchased. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and the Season Guide is the 220-odd page colour um, book that we've put together. It's the official Repco Supercars Championship Guide. You can get it on the website now, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. It's got all the notes and quotes. It's got the point scores. It's got the driver and team profiles, the record books, all of the stuff that you need. If you're sitting on the couch or trackside at the track, you need a copy of this because it's a real ripper to help you follow the season and your favourite drivers. And this weekend, Simmons Plains, you want to flip it open and go, oh, geez, who won here in 2004? Bang, there, there's the answer. All the winners are listed there. Uh, to really answer this, Grove Racing, we would consider a continuation on of Kelly Racing. So mm. there's been a gradual ownership process there. So Kelly Racing began in 2009 in their facility, which is still there, which Groves are in. Of course, um, last year the Groves bought half of the team to therefore call, uh, make it called Kelly Grove Racing. Of course, there was a time where Kelly Racing, the brand, kind of moved to the side because it was Nissan Motorsport when the Nissan mm. deal all occurred. And now, of course, the Groves have bought out the remainder of the stake of the Kellys and it's evolved into Grove Racing. So I consider that the – I mean, you can argue all of these in various different ways, but we continue to score that team – in terms of its statistics and its history because it's a continuation. Yes, there's been an ownership change. It's been a gradual one. It's the same facility. It's a lot of the same staff. It's the, it's the same structure. Whereas you look at Premier Racing and Peter Shiveris' team, so he's basically bought assets. He didn't mm. buy Team Sydney. He already owned one of the cars, the number 22 car. He already owned that even though it was at Team Sydney. He bought the other car. He bought, well, I was going to say the Rex, but what are they? They're charters now virtually, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, pretty much. The entity that is your share. Well, it was a shareholding previously in the business. It's now your right it's your, to race a it's car. It's your ticket to race yeah. a car and to earn money from um, the owners of the championship to support you in that. So in that case, it's a new owner. It's a new team. It's a new identity. It's a new facility. They're very much starting with a clean, fresh sheet. It's virtually all new staff as well. There's one maybe crew member that might have previously been at Team Sydney slash Techno who's, who's carried on there. But to me, that's a brand new team with a clean slate and a, a whole new ownership, whole new everything. Therefore, we start afresh in the way that we count those statistics. But Team Sydney was a continuation of Techno Autosports. Hmm. So any results that they achieved or starts or whatever were carried on from Techno through. But now that... That lineage stops. But you'll see all that in the Supercar Season Guide. Grab a copy. It's not just because we produce it, but we think it's a great thing that we've been able to get the fans to have um, the access to buy one of these copies because in the past this was just made for the media and provided to the media. We all got one because we're in the media. Yeah. But race fans are not in the media. But we managed, with the help of Supercars, to change that and to make the product available to you. We put, I think, th 30 more pages in it this year, Will. You were heavily involved in putting yeah, it together. We sure did. You're still tired <laughs> from putting it together. Yes. But it, it's a ripper and we're really proud of it. We've done it for the last, what, four or five years now. So if you're looking for a copy, head to our uh, website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. But, Michael, I hope that answers your question. So the next question is from Victor Petruno. He's asking, are things too relaxed at DJR? If Roger Penske was still the head of DJR Team Penske, would Anton Di Pasquale be drifting and crashing after the chequered flag 
and would only two podiums for the SMP weekend still be called a good result? I don't know about I I see where Victor's coming from, but I think Anton does that regardless of whether Roger Penske, Tim Sindrick are involved. I don't I think he'd have been drifting and mistakes happen, as we've seen. We've, as we like to remind Will Davison of his victory burnout oh, in Townsville. Yeah. <laughs> These things happen. Okay, the consequences of Anton shunting it were probably a bit more severe than the dented panel. Will the race did. either, though. Well, yes, this is true. <laughs> once a few things occasionally. Yeah, but I, I don't think that would have made a difference. I, I tend to disagree. I, I think it would have made a difference, it, it, certainly in the aftermath, because I'm, I'm not sure what the. Re- I mean, I wasn't in the, the garage when he got back. I don't know if he copped a. Uh, a talking to from Benny Croke and the crew. I'm sure they weren't thrilled because they had to turn that car around for a ride day the following day. Um, but it just felt like one of those things that I don't reckon would have happened in the Penske era. But I could be wrong, but you never know. But it's not a good look. I, I, I know it's a bit of fun, it's a bit of larking, but when you end up doing that, yeah, it's awkward. That's hmm. real awkward. It's uh, Look, put it this way, I don't reckon he'll do it again. I think that's a pretty safe safe read from that. And I think the other part is would two podiums for an SMP weekend still be called a good result for that team in the Penske era? You know what? Is it worth comparing and contrasting on all the elements of that team? It's not the team that it was. It yes. looks the same. The, the the cars look very much the same. The history continues. But there's so many different elements to it all. But everything's relative to where you're at in your current world. But, yeah, two podiums at SMP would not have been a good result in the Penske era, no doubt. But... We're in a different phase and era of where DJR is at. Now, I'm interested in this one. Justin Olden, this year or the end of this year, marks 20 years since ProDrive bought Glenn Seaton's team. Would you rate two Bathurst wins and a championship win for what's now called Tickford and all of its geysers with its resources and underperformance or just bad luck since they've had Scaife era of HRT to contend with, Triple Eight, and, of course, the era where Stone Brothers were, were solid and I'd probably have to throw in the HSV dealer team as part of that in that era as well um has the team known as tickford racing underperformed on the whole over 20 years will dale you look at all those numbers of the actual success that they've accrued and it's probably worth throwing race win numbers into that which question without notice it's in the season guide it's in the season guide (laughs) they've been one of the front running teams throughout that entire time and that's hard enough to achieve in this sport against competition like that they probably should have won a bit more. More of the big trophies in that time, though. They had big money from big sponsors for a fair chunk of that time. With that budget, could another of those other teams have done more with it? Maybe. It's so hard to know. Two Bathurst, but it took 10 years to get the first one, mm. and then it took 12 months to get the next one, yeah. and then they won the championship the next year. So, But you do look at the instances, instances of bad luck they had up there, so... 07 is probably the obvious one where Mark Winterbottom took pole position and then had the win, his chance to win the race taken away by a late shower where he speared off at the chase. He just didn't need to be first. He needed to be second or third then. Yeah, it's easy to think that. I know, it's I know, easy to say that afterwards. To lead the race, I know. Yeah. I, know. I mean, on the whole, if you compare and contrast and look at what Triple Eight did in that time, mm. because remember, they came in late 03, FPR came in at the start of 03. Yes. So it's pretty much like for like in terms of the time that they've been in the game. They both bought other organisations and built from there. Mm. So clearly, Triple Eight by far and away blows Tickford, but everybody else exactly. away in the numbers and achievements and championships and, and so on and so forth. So 
in a nutshell on its own, I think they've been pretty successful. Could they have achieved more? Yeah. For the time they had really big budget, I mean, it took them three years to really properly become a contender. Mm. Forget that Lowndes won at Phillip Island in 03. That was a bit of a misnomer in the yes. whole thing. 06 was when it started to go. Frosty turns up there. Bridie's competitive. And that's when they started to become regular contenders. So, And it's probably worth noting that you look at the time period that we're looking at, there have only been two teams that have been consistent competitors throughout that entire time, and Tickford is one of them. Yeah, totally, totally. And I can't see... I just can't help but look at the two Bathurst and the championship win happening in those that block of three years. If they were scattered out through the 20, but they're honed right in that point that's mm. just past the midway point. So uh, it's a really hard one to, to say because it's all relative, relative to other teams, relative to Triple Eight. Um, I, I think they've done all right, but there was, if you, yeah, probably a little bit more to, to be had there, all truth, truth being told. And they're not consistent enough still. Yes. <laughs> Hasn't really changed. But then again, who is beyond Triple Eight? I mean, really, if anyone gets whacked for being um, inconsistent, everyone's just about got to be whacked for being inconsistent because there's only been one squad, apart from the Penske era of DJR mm. Tim Penske, that's been consistently at the front and it's Triple Eight. And so. we love inconsistency because it mixes up the results. That's right. More of that, please. Bring it on. Brody Taylor asks, what was the story of Paragon Motorsports and why they couldn't compete towards the end of the 01 season and maybe their withdrawal before the end of the OT season too? Now, this is probably a good topic to discuss for our younger listeners. This is 2001, 02. Uh, this is 20 years ago. Uh, where were you 20 years ago? I was in high school. Oh, jeez. I feel old. Jeez. <laughs> I, I was working in the industry. Oh, you're not that much younger. No, than and me. you jeez. started young in the industry. I did too. start in the industry very young. So Paragon Motorsports was a team that was around for a couple of years in supercars. So it was born out of the Greenfield Mowers team that Cameron McLean and his dad John had run. So basically, um, I think it was later in 2000 uh, or midway through that year, um, a couple of partners got together and John sold out. One of them was the late Jamie Blakey, who went on to run Carrera Cup for many years. That's when I first came across Jamie. I think a lot of people in the sport um, first came across him. Ross Dillon and Michael McMahon, from my memory, were the others. There were four partners in Paragon Motorsport. So they carried on the Greenfield team for the rest of that year. They built a new car for the following year. You might remember it was the white Greenfield Mowers car, predominantly white. It had been yellow uh, the previous year. Mm. And then they had a drama. In 2001 at the Queensland 500, it was Cameron and Rick Bates driving and they got served a Supreme Court injunction on the Friday after, I think it was after practice or pre-qualifying one of the two or both. Um, Neil Bates had done the first practice session. Yeah, it was Neil Bates, not Rick Bates. Um, And then they got served papers because what had happened was they'd put VIP pet food sponsorship on the car, which, of course, Tony Quinn's, VIP Pet Foods were getting involved in sponsoring motorsport and things beyond his own, you know, racing program. And Greenfield was still on the car, just not in not as, as big and dominant and obvious. Because you know, remember the yellow Super Tours that he ran, and then the early V8s. They were mm. very much Greenfield Mowers yellow cars. Yes, uh, this was a, a white car with a bit of Greenfield on. It. So I think them moving Greenfield, which I think they, from my memory, and this is just from my memory. They felt that the Greenfield signage was able to be moved if they got a better deal, and I don't think Greenfield thought that. And sadly, it caused a bit of a, a drama there because they had a very long-term, like family business type connection. So anyway, the car got parked for the weekend. They couldn't race. It went to the Supreme Court. It got sorted out in the end, and Cam was back in that car for the next round at Winton, you'll remember. But they were running low on money, 
And Paul Stokel got flung by DJR after Queensland when he drove with Greg Ritter. So they brought Cameron back, who'd been driven. Well, he drove for them the year before, and mm. he bought a DJR car to come into V8 Supercars prior to that. So he drove at Bathurst with, with Greg. They were at the point where they were pretty much cooked in terms of the funding. Then they get VIP Pet Foods as their naming rights back FRO2. They go and buy the old Budweiser Prancing Horse car. Well, it wasn't that old. It was still it was relatively one, new. Two race, race meetings old. Two race meetings and one actual race. Um, and and ran it throughout the year, finished top 10 at Bathurst with Tony Scott and Cameron driving, and then straight after that event, VIP said we're out because they felt we finished top 10 at Bathurst. We got no TV coverage. Mm. I think the guys running Paragon were it was just getting harder and harder to compete and raise the money year after year, and they decided at the end of that year that they were out, and that team and all the gear uh, franchise went to Thexton. David Thexton created Thexton Motor Racing out of that. So that was... Paragon, and that's why they were only there for, what, two and a half seasons, basically. And, of course, Jamie Blakey for 03 went off to run Carrera Cup. Um, Cameron McLean became an endurance driver for Kmart Racing, which a lot of people forget for 2003, and he drove for Gary Rogers um, after that. Had it not been – had the weather rained? Had it rained a bit more late in 07 at Bathurst? Mm. We could be talking about Greg Ritter and Cameron McLean as Bathurst 1000 winners because they were the only car, I think it was with Greg at the wheel, on wets. Yes. And had it really bucketed a bit more, he was more primely positioned to slice his way through and go on and win that. But Bathurst, coulda, woulda, shoulda, didn't, wasn't. A lot of people have that story. Mm. Yes. Uh, next question. Gary Eichenloff, oh, I've got to get this right, Gary Eichenloff, uh, he says about on supercars during pit stops that you see that the wheel nuts machine in the wheel so it doesn't go astray, but in practice and quality, the wheel nut can get undone and removed from the wheel. He asks, is there a different wheel for qualifying and a different wheel for racing to accommodate the nut? Technical the, expert, Will Dale. The simple answer is no. So the way it's designed, the nut is captive inside the wheel and the whole purpose of that is so that it doesn't come out during a race when you're doing pit stops. You can knock it out, like it takes a bit of effort, but you can knock them out um, in any other session. But, yeah, the whole point of them is to stay attached to the wheel to make pit stops faster. So it's the same wheel, practice qualifying and racing. Good, because it gets really expensive if you need a pile of wheels for a pile of different sessions. And exactly. That Supercars be- has not reached that level where no, they can afford definitely. that. definitely. Let's not reach that level, whatever we do. Um, quick one too. Don't forget the motorsporttrader.com. It's keeping your motorsport memories alive. I'm not sure how they go for wheel nuts in terms of availability, but they've got panels, they've got race suits, they've got all sorts of motorsport memorabilia. Check out their website, check out their Facebook page. Uh, They've got some really cool and interesting stuff. The motorsporttrader.com, tell them that we sent you. Uh, By the way, too, Tuesdays, lock it in, make it a regular thing, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, Castro Motorsport, actually no, the award-winning Castro Motorsport News podcast, Stefan Bartholomeus mm. and Andrew Van Leeuwen, back every Tuesday. So it's perfect listening for the week. Castro Motorsport News pod on Tuesday, V8 Sleuth pod on Wednesday, Repco Supercars Weekly Thursday. We've just got you covered for pods. So whether you're driving to or from work or you're at home or you're here or there, we've got you covered for three days of the week with podcast as well. Uh, another one here, Robert Northway, interested in your take on this, Will. Do you think supercars will ever bring back, we've been asked this a few times actually, the Enduro Cup in its proper form, a 500, Bathurst and the Gold Coast? For Robert, it brought great balance to the championship as a whole. You get the excitement of the start of the season, then you get a bit of a grind going, then you get to the Enduros, the buzz of Bathurst, 
the buzz of sand down, I think he says more so. Bathurst, Bathurst, it's big and booming. And then the Gold Coast was over and you got a mini playoff vibe to finish off the season. So I was chatting to a mate of mine while we were at Thorpe Island on the weekend about this very topic and I felt one way when we started the conversation and by the end I'd convinced myself of the reverse <laughs> um, because there was a key thing that I'd kind of forgotten about. So come come with me on the journey, Robert. Okay, so which way did you start and which way did you finish? So the way I started was that I really d- don't see a way where we get many Enduros back beyond the Bathurst 1000 because they're expensive endeavours and these teams don't have heaps of money and they don't like spending money. And it means They find ways to spend money on all sorts this. of things, though, Will. This is true, but cut the amount of miles that are being put into machinery in race conditions, cuts the amount you have to pay a co-driver because you're paying them for one event rather than three. And, or two. Or two. And on that basis, I figured, well, the odds of it coming back, of Enduros outside of Bathurst coming back, it's probably low for the short term. And then... As the conversation continued, we realised, hey, Gen 3 next year, those cars would potentially head to Bathurst without an endurance race to um, to shake out any long-term, long-distance bugs. Mm. So I think if there's any chance of, endu- of an endurance race being added to the calendar pre-Bathurst, it'll happen next year. So you just consider, so we're going to race at Sandown in August this year as part of the championship. Mm. I haven't got it with me. It's in the season guide. What's the race format? Three times 125k races, somewhere around that? Something like that. So what's that? About 350-odd kilometres of racing. Mm-hmm. So a Sandown 500 is only 150 kilometres more. Mm. Not that much more. It's like adding one more race to that weekend. Yes, you've got to do refueling. Yes, you've got to do all those different things. Yes, you've got to have a co-driver. So yes, he's doing an extra weekend to work on top of the Bathurst weekend that he's going to be doing. Geez, it's more expensive, though, to smash a car up at Bathurst because you haven't been able to give the guy any laps during the year, isn't it, though? That's true, but I think they'd be hiring people that they would figure would not smash the car up at Bathurst. The the odds for that are getting higher every year. It's like, can you imagine playing the AFL or NRL Grand Final, having not played a game all season and just done a couple of days training here and there? Like, that's equivalent of what we're trying to ask, what we're asking these co-drivers to do. How many shunted last year? I don't know. Can't remember off the top of my head. No I, idea. I can think of Chris Pither on Thursday afternoon, right at the end of mm-hmm. practice. At the um, elbow. At the elbow. Jade no Jada during the race at the elbow. And he, to be fair, had also been in a Super 2 car for as much of the season as occurred. Extra miles. That, that's it. That's all I could come up with. So here's the other question, though, Batman, that goes to this Robin, Batman, Robin, whoever you want to be. Riddler? <laughs> Joker, whatever. The key about, and this is where, you know what? We, and I'm not sure what some of these endurance drivers are being paid, but clearly the top-tier guys be on a good wicket just for one weekend of the year and doing a test day or two and mm. whatever else is required, some ride days and some media Appearances, stuff, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. If you change the endurance driver rules back, and this won't happen, but if you take away the whole everyone stays in their own car thing and therefore that takes away just as much oomph on having to have the best co-drivers available, because you don't so much need them if you're going to put your main blokes together. Mm. It, I, I, so it's a whole other topic for another day. Yeah. But basically, in the nutshell, to compare it to why it matters for this, if you suddenly don't add as much requirement on the spend and you have two events, you probably get a lot of these guys for the same money. Mm. Yeah, I see the point. So it doesn't place as much of a premium on 
Garth Tan to Craig Land, Scott McLaughlin, whoever it might be to co-drive because, you know what, uh, if you're Red Bull and what's your best option, if you remove the rule, it's Van Gisbergen and Feeney together. Yeah. The two guys that are racing full-time. So then you go, all right, so driver, do you want to be the lead driver of our second car? Yeah, sure. Well, we don't have to pay you as high a premium because you're not as important. You're not as important to us now as you are when we're going to put you in with Shane Van Gisbergen or Anton Di Pasquale or whoever it might be. So there's other ways to look at it too. But supercars and teams, as much as they talk about saving money, they find all sorts of other ways to spend money in other areas. So another 150 Ks to bring back an icon of the sport, the Sandown 500, for example, for crying out loud, come on. For 100, I know, I know it costs money per kilometre. But there's how many practice sessions do we see that are just mindless, adding <laughs> nothing to the show? Cut some practice sessions from during the year and put some more racing miles in and let's have another enduro and be done with it. Add some sizzle for the lead up to the biggest race of the year. Well, we talk about um, racing miles over the course of a calendar year. The one I'm interested in seeing how they work out is the addition of a round in Adelaide at the end of the 2022 season. 500 kilometres of racing that wasn't there Um I'm the sure they've factored it in in the background that it could have happened. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway, that's one of those ones. Nice link to the next question too, Will. I see what you did there with your segue. Uh, Danny Namoni, who is a regular listener, uh, do we think the returning the Adelaide 500 season finale is a one-off? I think he means as the finale. Mm. And will the supercars return to Adelaide as the traditional season opener return next year or after the grand finale? Well, I tell you what, when I stood at the last Adelaide 500 in 2020 and we thought in the media room, this has kind of lost a bit of its sizzle, we know why it lost a bit of its sizzle because Mm. the people running it let it lose a bit of its sizzle. I like the idea of ending in Adelaide like Formula One used to. Absolutely, absolutely, because it's a big enough – the way the event is being suggested it will come back as that old style of it's a – it is an carnival. event. It's yeah. a carnival. Yeah. There'll be concerts and everything built around the race weekend. Kind of doesn't matter whether you have a championship decider or not because the atmosphere in Adelaide was brilliant to mm. brilliant, regardless of whether you're starting the season or ending the season. And realistically, Newcastle is a season opening race. That does work too. It's, mm. Oh, it's, look, they yeah. both work in either spot, yeah. really. I mean, two big marquee events at the bookend your championship makes total sense. I think they should leave Adelaide where it is. Keep the fringe because they have everything in South Australia at the same time. Because where it is now, it fits in before cricket season, after AFL season. It's way away from the fringe and it it fits. It works where where they're going to put it now. It's going to be hot, but it'll be warm. But even though, I mean, but we've had some mega hot 40 degree days in Adelaide at the other end of the year too. Yes. Which is only in the calendar, another couple of months, it's the other side of summer. Yeah. So. I like it. I'm down with it. I'd be cool with it. And even if you don't have a championship battle rumbling and it's pretty much decided or it is wrapped up, mm. doesn't matter because winning the Adelaide 500 is so prestigious that you've got to go and have a crack as well. And it's it's a special event. And don't forget too, this will mean we do have to do a new chapter or two for our Adelaide 500 history book, which if you haven't got a copy, get on the website, get on our bookshop. Uh, we did this book um, last year. 400 pages, it's colour, it's hardcover, it's got beautiful imagery from every Adelaide 500 event, some cool Grand Prix era stuff as well Mm. from touring car racing, all the stats, all the facts. If you're a supercars connoisseur and you haven't got a copy, 
get a copy of this book. It's one that we're really proud of. Probably hasn't been up in lights as much as some of our other books over the journey, but if you're a fan of supercars or the Adelaide 500, but there's lots of support category photos in there too. It's not just about the V8s from every year, but it's a pretty cool book, um, bookshop.v8slith.com.au. Be there. And if you want to see a photo of the Bandag bullet ripping an amazing burnout, <laughs> yes, this is the yes. place to come as well. Uh, there was a guy dressed up as a gladiator one year. There was some Formula One cars on display. There was Batman. Uh, we've got a lot of TCM in there. There's a bit of GT. There's a bit of Carrera Cup. There's a bit of Murray Walker pops up a few times. Yeah, uh, Utes. Oh, yeah, we, we had it all. Yeah. We combed the photo archive like we have never uh, combed before. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Craig Murray has a good question here, and I reckon you can answer this. What year of the Bathurst 1000 had the lowest number of classified cars finishing as a percentage of the starters? So what was the what's the worst finish rate in Bathurst great race history? So we asked Shane to um to go through the database and spit out the result for us. And it's interesting that there's no like clear era where all these races have occurred. They're just spread. They're, they, they are. So the lowest number of classified cars as a finishing percentage of starters happened in 1977 in the the Group C era. Oh, but it was so much better than Will. There were so many cars. It was the golden era. 60 cars started the race. Not many finished. 22 were classified for a finishing rate of 37%. Oh, so the two-litre race in 97 with 25, 26 cars had a better finishing rate. We'll get to this. All right, okay. It's on the list, is it? Second on the list, 1988 to his 1,000. Yeah, Peak okay. Group A era. Yep. Nineteen out of 48, 48 starters were classified Ooh. at the finish. Now, yeah. factoring in that six, well, seven cars weren't allowed to start. <laughs> That's right. The uh, the DNPQs and the yeah. the ones that protested and yeah. cars that um, had one driver qualify but the other one mm-hmm. didn't, or both drivers didn't qualify, or and several cars that were ruled as not classified because they hadn't finished the last lap or hadn't finished in the time period. And, Various things like that. But anyway, 19 out of 48, classified 39.6%. Next is the 1999 FAI 1000. 22 out of 55 starters made it to the check. It were classified as finishers. Mm So 40%. Yep. And then fourth on the list is the 97 two-litre race. 11 finishers out of 27 starters, 41%. Right, there and you go. Two were disqualified, including the car oh, that yeah. <laughs> saw the checkered flag <laughs> yeah. first. And, and the Mondeo that reversed down the mountain mm. was the other one that got... Um, and the car that was booted. pushed to the finish line also was not classified. Not classified, yep. Diane Bewley in the fast way, Curious Peugeot, that wasn't going the fast way home, the mm. 405. That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 77, you know, the, the glory era, but that's why I, I do get a giggle sometimes, and that's why I was being a bit funny there before, yes. is that... So many people will say to us how great it was back there and it was such a great era. But, like, let's be honest, a third of the field were out before the first pit stop. Like, it, and, you know, Backyard Motors was also great and so so wonderful. Imagine if it was like that now. They'd be throwing rocks over the fence and at their TV. At so many cars just suddenly disappearing out of the race. I mean, having 55, 60 cars 
is not the be-all and end-all to turn on a good race. I'm sorry, but it's not. I mean, watch the six-hour in Easter. With, was it 70 cars? Something like Something that, like yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, man. Like, that's awesome. I love a record. But last year there were so many safety cars. Like, the actual ratio of green flag to yellow flag running in that yes. six-hour race, oh, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. So... While we were digging this data out, oh, Shane, looked at the st- Shane looked at the, the reverse scenario. What's the, the greatest best. percentage okay, of cars like to make it, it right. This is bonus extra stuff for Craig. So the highest finishing percentage was 2018, where 24 of the 26 cars made it to the end. Uh, do I get a feeling that we're going to be predominantly supercar era here because the cars are pretty bulletproof these days? We've got a top five. And the fifth one is, in my opinion and Shane's opinion, quite the surprise. We didn't see this coming. So second on the list is 2013, 26 out of 29 starters. Mm -hmm. 2012 is next, 25 out of 29 starters. And that's actually tied with 2011, also 25 out of 29 starters. So what's the fifth one? 56 starters, 48 finishes. 1964. <laughs> they weren't going fast enough not to finish. <laughs> so we were discussing this and thought, well, back oh, then, on series production. There were rules around this, though. Was this the year in the era where you didn't have to do 75% of the race mm. to be classified as a finisher? Well, everyone did. So we looked All at right, the list. So they and, still yeah, count no matter yeah. what. Yeah. But because it was series production, because so many manufacturers were using it as a proving test that their cars were reliable, mm-hmm. there, was, there was incentive to... A, build the cars to make the finish, and B, make the finish. And most cars did. There are only, I think, a handful of cars went out with gearbox dramas. One car blew an engine. One car didn't finish its last lap within 10 minutes of the winner crossing the line. And one car was disqualified for not for, for using tools that weren't included in the boot of the car within the first 20-something laps a, of the race. Which was a rule back there. If you had a drama in the first X period of the race... You had to use what you had, and that was it. Yes. Yep. Yep. There you go. So, yeah. Cop that, Craig. That's a good one. <laughs> that was a good one. We really enjoyed that. Mm. Next question from Jaden Ricketts. Aussie Driver Search. They ran an FG Falcon. I, I believe it's called a podium on the Gold Coast. Which chassis was it, and what's its history? And for extra points, where is it now? Side fact, Kyle, who drove it on the Gold Coast, was actually my driving instructor who helped me get my P's. There you go. Well, Jaden, sounds like you're looking for this car pretty Pretty interestingly, that was an old FPR car. That was one of their early FG Falcons, in fact, that Steve Richards drove um, in 2009. He actually didn't drive it for the full year, but he drove it for, for part of the year. But old uh, old mate um, uh, Dean Canto had crashed the other car at Bathurst, so Richo ended up um, running this one for the rest of the year. And then he drove it. Remember when they had the Dunlop Super Dealer yellow on the mm. side of Richo's car? He had that livery on this car for the first part of the next year. Tony Delberto had it after that. Remember when he made the move to Ford for a little while there, uh, which was a big move for them because the Delbertos have been a long-term uh, Holden family. Then it spent some time um, away from Delberto. Actually, no, they did run it themselves because Nick McBride drove it for them in development series. Jim Polisina had it in uh, the development series after that. Um, Brett Hobson, I think, ran it for a little bit, and then it became the Aussie Driver Search car that Jaden refers to, which that um, was a competition whereby people paid their money to try to win a drive in various categories and cars. It ran for I don't know, a year or two, and then it all fell apart um, in a bit of a mess, a uh, bit of a disaster there. Um, this I wonder car- where Matt Powers is now. What's that? I wonder where Matt Powers is now. 
the American who won that. He yeah. was supposed to get a Super 2 season, wasn't he, as part of the prize for that? Mm. I think he's back in the States, I think. Yeah. And um, is this the car that our the V8 sleuth's own Stefan Bartholomeus would have driven? Correct weight. And I'm pretty sure from memory he's Castro Motorsport News podcast co-host Andrew Van Leeuwen may have turned some laps in this. I reckon you're right. A few different journos got the opportunity to drive this car over the course of the time that it was in the Aussie driver search. Not um, us, however. No, no one rang us to get a go at it, which is probably safer for, for the <laughs> for the car's future. <laughs> yes. um, but the administrators were ended up being called in for that um, Aussie driver search and ended up with a bunch of vehicles that were auctioned off and this was one of them. Um, and it ran with Joel Heinrich at uh, the Bend in Super 3 a couple of years ago um, and uh, it's been retained since then. So, yeah, that car's around. It's got an interesting history from over the journey. It's amazing to think actually, you know, what are we at? 2022 it's 13 years old it's it's scary how fast this this time's flowing from you know this era of v8 supercars it's nuts this is very true next question is from josh cochran with nascar and hendrick motorsports recently announcing they are taking a next gen nascar to le mans in 2023 could you see v8 supercars doing the same with our gen 3 car in the future for le mans or even following mal rose's efforts and run at the nurburgring 24 hour can't see it happening for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Can't see that they're even thinking about it. They've got so much on their plate at the moment. The concept of the the it's a bit out there, the thinking. It's it's not as wild as it probably initially seems when you think about it. But to give our listeners an idea, Lamar and the organizers, the ACO, have what they call Garage 56. Mm. So i.e. 55 cars plus one. And if you've got something that's really unique, that's really breakthrough, that's really out there like the Delta Wing was and, yes. and or powered by something very different to regular fuel or whatever you've got. Mm. It's sort of like a hybrid concept car. You know, if you've got something interesting, come and uh, have a go and we'll, we'll run it in the race. I just can't see supercars ever thinking like that about this sort of a thing. Um, they've got enough on their plate anyway. So, Well, I'd be damned if they do it, didn't, damned if they didn't at this point because if they did announce it tomorrow, they'd be seen to be copying NASCAR. Yeah. So. <laughs> exactly, and I, I don't think that it, it doesn't hold up any weight to run at the Nürburgring 24 or do anything. I mean, it's. I think, though, in the future, if you're supercars and you've invested in this new um, platform and you know all of the bits that will put together these Camaros and Mustangs moving forward – and someone from overseas came to you with a concept to license the supercar formula, branding and run a Asian supercar series or a European supercar series or something somewhere else, mad if you don't look at it. For sure. And I would think that's de- that would be something that they've already discussed. Would have thought so. Brock Gain, regular listener, saw Brock walking around on the weekend down at Phillip Island. Uh, he was talking to a few drivers at the Shannons uh, around on the weekend who expressed their frustration opinion on the super license system and how categories outside of supercars and the umbrella, so Super 2 and Super 3, don't accumulate enough points quickly enough to be eligible for supercars unless they try and come up with a budget to run in Super 2. So it's got him thinking. Now that ARG has an ownership slice of supercars, would it be feasible for them to either scrap or change the super license system or is it a matter that uh, Motorsport Australia would make the call on. Well, it's a Motorsport Australia licensing system. so In conjunction with supercars. Yes, but they would have to be involved in making that call. It is – this is the thing. Super 2 does cost a lot of money to run a full-season program, and if you don't finish in the top six, you don't 
earn a super license. But you've got but you've got to score your points in whatever and there's a system and it's on the website of which category earns which points. Hmm. Whether you're in the top first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth in the previous year's points. You need 13 points to qualify for a super license. But then you need to qualify one of four criteria on top of that, and one of which is that you finished top six in Super 2, mm. one of which is that you've done, I think, three main game rounds in the last five years, or there's a couple of other things that are all connected to Super 2 and Super Cars. Yes. So, for example, and this is why I really want to talk about this. Mm. So take, for example, and there are exemptions that can be permitted and can be applied for. And have in the past. And have been approved and denied mm. over the journey for Super Licence. So... I wanted to take someone like Joey Mawson as an example. So he's internationally credentialed from an yep. open-wheeler perspective. He is the reigning uh, Gold Star S5000 Australian Drivers Champion. He's driving in that category. We saw him mm-hmm. on the weekend racing game. So he won it last year, correct? Yes. 12 points, you get to your super licence. So he's nearly at the, the cusp. So let's say he does something else this year that gets him another couple, finishes in the top few, whatever it is. Yeah. He's got his 13. You've got to score him within a certain last couple of years you can't you can't go you well can back in 1997 them, yeah. i finished third in you know doesn't count i don't think his points from german formula 4 will count towards I think italian it's a bit too far back yeah, How long i think it was, was that? seven, 16 or 17 against mick schumacher yes and he he whooped mick schumacher yes. for the record so right now joey mawson the reigning gold star champion would need an exemption to get a co-drive at bathurst mm. if a team went hey we want this guy in our car Huh? Yeah, that, that seems crazy. I would hope that that would get given straight away. Mm. But every time I look, and I haven't really looked at the super licensing too deeply, you can always look at the weighting of points from different categories and go, well, if you win the Australian GT Championship, it's 12 points. But if you win Carrera Cup, it's 10. Hang on a minute. One's a Pro-Am Championship and one you'd be the pro winning a series, which, yes. look, there's always going to be those arguments around it. But sh- shouldn't we get to the point? And I understand why you have to have a system but if you have some of these people like a Joey Mawson or whoever be an exemption that 20 years ago, if you were the reigning then Formula Holden champion, you'd done enough and shown enough to get a gig if a team put you in their second car for Bathurst. If you were the current Formula Ford champion, that yep. could happen. And Luke had Gilden happened did on multiple it. occasions. A bunch of other guys Jamie did it. Jamie Wincup. Yep, yep. A bunch of other guys did it. So all it's do- what it's doing is it's pushing – Drivers to have to go to Super 2, yes. which in reality, if you want to be a supercars champion or go down that path, then you, you kind of need to drive the cars anyway to prove to the teams that you can do it, to learn the peculiarities of the cars as well. And then you'll have these – look, Anton Di Pasquale was another one. Mm. He'd gone overseas, remember, came back. He didn't actually qualify for a super licence given what he'd been racing and what he'd been doing. Got an exemption as he – rightly should have and i'm sure a lot of these drivers that we're talking about that don't fit the criteria would get the exemptions but if you end up with so many exemptions or drivers that fall into that category what is the point then what's the point of having the system and i think barry rogers has come out saying look he's got an s5000 category that he's involved in that's struggling for numbers and if you're a young driver on the pathway that wants to go to supercars you're being steered to super three and super two because that's kind of how the rules sit for you to Try to get there. You you could go via S5000, but you're still going to have to stop over yeah. at Club Super 2 along the way. <laughs> yes. And that's another half a million bucks for the year. So, yeah. uh, I mean, we've got to get to the position where there's some of these great drivers in TCR and Trans Am and some of these categories where they're showing what they can do. But unless you're in Super 2, 
you won't get a go. Like it, it, it's. I'd be really interested to know if someone's going to fire restriction of restraint of trade, or because I, I keep reading and hearing from various people talking about those things. So it's a bit frustrating. I, I understand that you've got to have a framework. You've got to try to have some rules. But I think if people are going to want to make the supercars, more often than not, they're going to be going Super 3, Super 2 anyway. But when you've got these numbers and these this system, oh, there's just it's just frustrating to look at and to see. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So what's the point of getting all worked up about it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Here we Thanks are. for helping get worked up, Will. Thanks for helping <laughs> oh, get worked up. I'm calm on this side of the table. Yeah, I can, right. okay. and, but it's, I can see that it's frustrating looking just from the outside. I can only imagine how, how infuriating it must be as a young, talented driver with a certain budget or no budget and not be able to see how they would get to supercars. Without, I mean, you could take all the, you could go down your other pathway categories, earn your points. But you've still then got to get the exemption for being exempt for one of the four other elements, whether it's top six yeah. finishing in Super 2 or having done a certain amount of rounds over the last few years or whatever the case may be. I'm sure if there's good quality people and drivers who don't fit the criteria, they'll get an exemption. But you've got to have spent your money to do those categories exactly. to hope then that you get yeah. an exemption. That's a big That's a big risk there. It really is. Will Tatnell asks, I have a very interesting question for you. We are familiar of the FG Falcon being transformed into an FGX body. Did this ever happen in the Group C era of the Australian Touring Car Championship? Oh, all the time. Mm. Absolutely. Hardtop XBGTs became... Oh, XAGTs. Oh, XAs became XBs that became XCs. Yep. Um, Tiranas that were L34 four-doors became A9Xs. Yep. Commodores that were VBs became VCs, then VHs. I don't think any became VKs after that. I think they were all new Group C VKs. Well, there were a few Group C. They? Well, they were all group new Group C VKs, but there were a few um, Group C VHs that became Group A VK Commodores. That's true. Yep. Yep. And theoretically, you could have converted a v, you could have upgraded a VB Commodore to VC, VH then VK in Group C, then convert it to Group A VK, <laughs> then to Carby VL, then yep. to fuel-injected VL. Yep. So you, you could have, have done just that. About run, no no like cars 10, did, but you could you have. You could have run the same chassis for 12 years. That's insane. You, no no one have, did. There wouldn't have been much original metal left in it by the end, but no. enough to be yeah. continuing on the, the process on the way through. Yeah, that's yes. an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. And the last question from Daniel Meads, which actually, Daniel, I was wondering this as well. V8 Sleuth was the ex-DJR Moffat with Norton sponsorship and rackets in the coverage this weekend in a support category on Stan. I saw an FG Falcon that looked just like the Moffat DJR Norton livery, just with different sponsorship. And I saw this, I saw this lined up into, in um, pit lane as well. Uh, it was in the sports sedans category. And I had a feeling it was not the DJR car, it was clearly a, it was clearly a Falcon, and my gut feeling suggested it was either early Triple Eight or late Briggs. What say you? I would say that you've got to pick one of your guts. I don't know how many guts you've got, but it's the Briggs. <laughs> it's the gut. one I came standard it's with. It's the Briggs gut, and um, it's not what it looks like though. Mm-hmm. It's an AU underneath, uh-huh. looking like a, a BA. Um, Spe- that's very relevant BF, to Will question. Now. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, it's uh, Rick Newman races it in sports sedans. It was a, um, a Briggs AU way back in the day. It got cloaked in B 
BABF panels, oh, geez, nearly 10 years ago, actually probably more than 10 years ago now, um, and which, of course, for supercars you couldn't do. You couldn't no. upgrade an AU to a BA. Some of them have been over the journey for ride cars and sports sedans, but that's what this car is. It's not a DJR Moffat. Um, it's originally a Briggs and it's 20 years old this year, that sh- original part of that chassis. So, uh, yeah, there's, there was also another V8 supercar racing in sports sedans on the weekend, uh, Alan Nash with his um, Perkins Jack Daniels Commodore. And the coolest part of that was not only does he race that, he has a Jack Daniels race suit and his crew members, guess what they all wear? <laughs> yeah, I saw them walking Jack around. Jack Daniels team shirts. <laughs> yeah, I'm not great. sure if he's been on eBay or where he's got these from, but the team, I could have sworn it was Larry Perkins, Barry Ryan and all the boys from like 2006 well, or whenever well, it was that they them. were there. <laughs> not, not as many of them. Not as many. Smaller team um, than, than LP used to have back in the day. But it's cool to see some of these supercars racing on in sports sedans, in state series and stuff like that around the country. And it was good to see sports sedans actually have a run on the weekend at, a, at the Shannon's Motorsport Australia Championship round. It's a cool category, cool cars and um, – it's cool to see those bad boys out there. But, Daniel, you were looking at a Briggsy Falcon, not a DJR one. So there, there you, go. you go. Yeah. So that is the last question of our V8s with podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Next week, a sit-down chat with John Bow. In the very near future, I am going to collar Team 18's Charlie Schwerkolt for a chat as well. Collar him in the nicest in way. A, in a good way. In a good way. Not, not literally. Just going to roll Literally, not physically. Then. I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. grab him around the throat. He's agreed to sit down um, in the aftermath of Tasmania, so we're going to talk about his time in motorsport, Team 18, DJR, everything in between. Looking forward to that. Don't forget, like, subscribe, share, review. We haven't had many reviews of late of the podcast. If you're liking it, review. If you're not, send us an email and then we can deal with you separately offline. It's way easier that way. Um, Thanks again to everybody for tuning in and listening. Thoroughly appreciate the support. Keep the messages pumping through the socials. Keep consuming the content. Keep reading the stories. We love having you part of the V8 Sleuth world. And we will chat to you next week with another V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online. Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.